The attack on the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday was shocking, traumatic. This morning, I'd like to begin to reflect and respond to those events with a story from our own Unitarian Universalist history to, again, put these events into a, a larger context instead of merely the heat of the moment. And then there are a few related aspects of what happened on Wednesday that I would like us to explore in a little more detail. And finally, I will point us to where we might go from here. As Dr. King once said in the title of his final book, where do we go from here? Chaos or community? We've had leaders choosing chaos. How might we choose instead beloved community? But let's begin with just a brief trip backward into history. This coming Wednesday will mark the 452nd anniversary of a significant event from the Unitarian half of our heritage. I think this story is actually worth revisiting annually. Uh, we last looked at it on the 450th anniversary. That it's actually worth revisiting annually in any given year. And after the events of this past week, its relevance is even stronger as a reminder, both of the importance and the precariousness of trying to build the world we dream about, as uh, was spoken about so powerfully in the poem that Jen shared for our spoken meditation, a world not of supremacy and dominance, but of ever-widening circles of inclusion and compassion. To say more about what I mean, come with me on just a brief journey back to the mid-1500s. Remember, that's the, the century of the Protestant Reformation. So I will share my screen with you. I think that may help with um, keeping us all tracking with what we're talking about. So come with me back to the time of John Sigismund uh, Zapolia, King of Hungary. He was history's only Unitarian king. And on January 13th, 1568, he enacted the Edict of Torda. It was a landmark act of religious tolerance and of freedom of conscience. At a time when many ruling authorities, they were persecuting and executing religious dissenters. Sigismund created space for religious diversity. And specifically, that meant at least three major things. It meant that congregations were declared free to hire a preacher whose teachings they approve instead of having a clergy member imposed on them. It meant that ministers were declared free to preach based on their own best understandings of the truth instead of having predetermined assignments or limits. And as we have here at UCF, there's the freedom of the pulpit and the freedom of the pew. I'm free to say what I think is important to say, and you're free to take it or leave it. And likewise, the editor of Tortoise said that individuals are free to practice the religion of their choice. These Basic protections that you're seeing on this slide for the free exercise of religion, maybe it seems like common sense to you today. It, it seems like common sense to me in many ways. But let me give you a point of comparison to help contextualize how groundbreaking the Edict of Torda was at the time. In 1531, a little more than a decade earlier, Michael Servetus courageously planted one of the first strong roots that grew into the Unitarian half of our UU heritage when he published a book with the not very subtle title, On the Errors of the Trinity. You're seeing there the, the original um, Latin, De Trinitatis Aeropolis. Rather than tolerating this book as, all right, that's one guy's opinion, in 1553, John Calvin had Servetus burned at the stake for the so-called um, heresies 
of anti-Trinitarianism and of anti-Pado-Baptism. What that second one means is being against the baptism of infants and saying people should only be baptized if they're adults and really understand what is going on. Uh, and there are arguments for both sides of these things, but I'm glad we're not killing each other anymore over uh, those who disagree. In stark contrast to Calvin's harsh theocratic rule in Geneva, Switzerland, King Sigismund's Edict of Religious Toleration in Hungary, modern-day Romania, uh, a mere 15 years later in 1568, gave the world a very different example of how we might coexist amidst religious difference. Now, to be fair, I should add that the Edict of Torda, it wasn't some full-throated celebration of religious pluralism, such as we might hope for here in the 21st century. The Edict of Torda only extended religious tolerance to four religious groups, Lutherans, Calvinists, Catholics, and Unitarians. But for the mid-1500s, when the Protestant Reformation had just happened in 1517 and only a few decades into the scientific revolution, which had started in 1543 with Copernicus, constructing the societal big tent large enough to hold at least these four different religious groups was major progress compared to the standard practice in many other places at the time that established major privileges for one dominant state-sponsored religion and often terrible disadvantages, sometimes death, for any other religion. To finish telling this part of the story, I need to in introduce you to one other person from our history. The person in the middle of that slide I showed you earlier, that's not Sigismund, that's um, Francis David. David was King Sigismund's court preacher who both converted Sigismund to Unitarianism and wrote the Edict of Torda, but it was Sigismund who, of course, signed it into power. Tragically, Sigismund died three years after he passed the edict at the um, far too young an age of 30. He was severely injured in a hunt. It's going to start sounding like Game of Thrones for anyone who uh, is a fan of that show. In his place, a new Catholic king was crowned, and history gave us a reminder of how much it can matter who was in charge. The new king removed all Unitarians from positions of power, and Francis David, the Unitarian author of the Edict of Torda, was found guilty of two things. Two things that, again, seem wild to us today, like what Servetus was killed for, not believing in pedo-baptism, not believing in the Trinity. Francis David was um, convicted of preaching innovations in religion. And on the one hand, it's true. If we you use are guilty of anything, it is innovations in religion. Uh, so he was convicted of preaching that Christians should follow Jesus's ethics primarily, as opposed to like focusing on worshiping Jesus and advocating that religion should evolve, that it should continue to change and grow in light of new evidence and understandings instead of conforming always to the ways of the past. So again, although we contemporary UUs are generally proud of doing both these things, we often say we believe in deeds, not creeds, that revelation is not sealed. David was tragically imprisoned and died later that same year at the age of either 58 or 59, we're not sure. As with Servetus before him, David was a martyr for Unitarianism, for freedom of conscience, and for religious liberty. So I've taken the time to outline this part of our history, even though there's a lot of other things I want to get to today, because as I prepare in a few moments to criticize misunderstandings, in my view, of religious liberty, I cannot emphasize strongly enough that our theologically liberal tradition of Unitarian Universalism 
we're all for religious liberty. So it's like when I criticize these certain understandings, some people are like, oh, you hate, you hate our freedom. No, no. I am all for religious liberty when it means protecting the rights of a wide spectrum of beliefs and practices. I'm just not for religious liberty when it's being abused to allow one group in a supremacist, dominant way to harm others. So keep this story from our past in mind as we begin to shift our focus to the desolating sacrilege of Wednesday's white supremacist terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. In many ways, that attack was motivated by a perverted understanding of religious freedom grounded in an exclusivist worldview of white Christian supremacy. Let me say more about what that means. Some of you may recall that a few weeks prior to the 2016 presidential election, I preached a sermon inspired by an important book titled The End of White Christian America by the sociologist of religion, Robert Jones. He recently published an important follow-up book titled Quite Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. That's not the only thing that's a legacy of Christianity. Wonderful, wonderful things in the Christian tradition as well, but white supremacy is in there as well. And Jones said regarding Wednesday's domestic terrorist attack, pay attention to the symbols being carried, the crosses, the Jesus saves signs, the Confederate flags. This unholy amalgamation, we could call it an unholy trinity, is the legacy of white supremacist Christianity. We have to name this heritage, he said, if we're going to heal our nation from this deadly disease. We can't keep picking at the scab, as the poem Jen read earlier says. There are many photos of these um, terrorists uh, carrying Confederate flags. That's just one of them. Uh, here's what's become the most famous one. I think his nonchalance and impunity are such telling signs of white male privilege. But there are also many examples of signs from the religious right. I'm going to limit myself just to two. Here's one that says Jesus saves from amongst the crowd. Much worse is the massive banner that was unfurled at one point at the Capitol that said Jesus 2020. At this point, I should perhaps clarify that you misunderstand my intent. If, again, if you take my words today as a broadside against the Christian tradition as a whole. As I've said at length in previous sermons that do not have time to go back into today, following the way of Jesus today would, of course, lead one to oppose American imperialism just as he opposed Roman imperialism in his day, but not in the way it was done Wednesday. If you're curious to learn more about what I'm talking about, I, I will just refer you to the fascinating and accessible book by John Dominic Crossan titled God and Empire, Jesus Against Rome Then and Now. In contrast to that much more authentic view, what I'm condemning is these um, terrorists violently invading the U.S. Capitol and doing acts like smearing their own feces on the walls of Congress and in some cases seeking to harm or kill elected officials. This is not what Jesus would do. What they are representing is not the way of Jesus, but a toxic strain of Christianity called Constantinianism, Constantinianism after the fourth century Roman emperor Constantine. It is a deeply perverted um, form of Christianity perverted by patriarchy and by power. Here's what I'm talking about. This photo is of some of these same domestic terrorists milling about 
on the floor of the United States Senate. But be sure to notice in the right-hand side, um, the so-called Christian flag, and this is a, a Constantinian Christian flag in the uh, right-hand corner. Some of you will be familiar with this flag. Others of you like me, some of you will be unfamiliar with this flag. Others of you like me will be all too familiar with it. I grew up with both that Christian flag and the American flag at the very front of the sanctuary on either side of the baptismal of the Southern Baptist congregation in which I was raised. Also noteworthy is that every summer at the beginning of each day of our week-long vacation Bible school, all we elementary-aged um, children were gathered together in the main sanctuary to pledge allegiance to three things, to pledge allegiance to the Bible, to pledge allegiance to the Christian flag, and to pledge allegiance to the American flag. This, is a, this may seem wild and bizarre to some of you, and it's going to, again, seem very familiar to others of you. This is a very common practice in many conservative Christian congregations. In the spirit of fairness, let me add that the congregation of my childhood had a lot of good points as well, and there are many congregations, especially today, that are far more Christian nationalist than the one in which I was raised. If you're curious to know what does worse look like, uh, two resources I would point you to are Chris Hedges' powerful 2008 book, American Fascist, The Christian Right and the War on America, as well as the 2006 documentary, Jesus Camp. You can find that on Hulu, many other streaming platforms, including Canopy, uh, which is free through the public library, K-A-N-O-P-Y, a great free streaming service that your tax dollars are paying for. Uh, I'm intentionally highlighting books from more than a decade ago and films to emphasize that the trend lines that brought us to Wednesday have been a very long time in coming. You know, if there were times I would jump us back further still to the beginnings of the religious right, further still to the 1950s with this movement that, you know, it was not until the 50s that under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance, that in God we trust was added to our money. Perhaps more importantly than going back through all that history, let me just say, I, I grew up with all this stuff, as I know some others of you did. I've seen firsthand that Christian nationalists have a deep desire that a conservative, theologically conservative, racist, patriarchal, and anti-Semitic form of Christianity. Some of you may have seen these very, very deeply troubling Holocaust-related um, shirts and signs that people were carrying. They have this deep desire that a conservative, racist, patriarchal, anti-Semitic form of Christianity be privileged in the public square. They are also deeply committed to the false myth that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. As we all saw on our laptops or our television screens on Wednesday, there's just so much truth to the saying that is often incorrectly attributed to Sinclair Lewis. He didn't say it, but probably wishes he did. That when fascism comes to America, it's not going to look like Germany. When fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in the American flag and carrying the cross. So that's what we're seeing, carrying these Christian, you know, onward Christian soldiers. It's going to say, this is for, this is patriotism when it's de a deeply perverted patriotism. You know, this is Christianity when it's a deeply perverted form of Christianity. If we had more time, again, we could explore all the ways that uh, the Ku Klux Klan, also a white supremacist and Christian nationalist movement, similarly used and perverted Christian symbols.
Here's one more important factor in the angle I'm taking this morning. For many months, I didn't plan to say a lot of what I've just said to you, um, because since long before this Wednesday's attacks, what I've been planning to have us explore this morning is the disturbing trend in the United States Supreme Court in favor of Christian nationalism. It's disturbing to me for so many reasons. In particular, I find it disturbing to watch play out the very thing that my childhood congregation, the one that had me pledging allegiance to the Bible and to the Christian flag and to the American flag, it's what they hoped from that unholy trinity. It's what they hoped in their wildest dreams would one day happen at the Supreme Court is starting to happen. These are widespread hopes in, in theologically conservative Christian circles. And I'm going to give you just a few examples. My childhood youth group encouraged us to participate in nationwide conservative Christian events, such as See You at the Poll. Such events are intentionally designed to push the boundaries of what is constitutional um, regarding prayer in public schools by making it allegedly student-led, even though I know it was really led by adults in my congregation who are saying, you know, was whispering in the ears, this is what you need to do. And to do it during free time before school hours officially begins, even though it's on school property. The reason I know it's intentionally designed to do that is that our youth leaders explicitly told us, here's why we want you to do this, because we, we, we think the Supreme Court is wrong. This photo is basically what I remember see you at the polls looking like at my high school in the late 90s. At other high schools across the country, it's grown much more popular. It's been happening annually each fall for more than two decades. It's planned again for September 22nd, 2021. Seriously, y'all, in my youth group growing up, we were taught about the history of the Supreme Court cases on the separation of church and state precisely because we, they wanted us to knock down that wall between the separation of church and state. They wanted us to subvert these court cases and eventually overturn them. If we had more time, I would love to go case by case through Supreme Court jurisprudence related to um, religion and the First Amendment, but I will limit myself only to a few recent cases within the past year. So you can really see this is happening right now, live, in real time. For those of you curious about the details, I highly recommend a short and accessible book that'll take you quickly through the full history. It's called The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State by the uh, really renowned constitutional scholar, Erwin um, Chemerinsky, is the, really the lead author on that book. Relatedly, for those of you who have done a lot of work in recent years trying to dismantle male privilege, dismantle white privilege, there's a whole related thing about dismantling white Christian privilege. Uh, so there's a book titled White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America by Kiati Joshi. For now, let me out, lay out just a few basic details because all this can be extremely helpful for dismantling the worldview that made Wednesday's attack even conceivable in the first place. And how do we instead help people construct a worldview in which they can understand how the best way forward is the building up of a multicultural democracy with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some or one group, but peace, liberty, and justice for all. In general, in general, Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of the University of California Berkeley Law School, I think mostly gets it right in that book that I showed you earlier, The Religion Clauses. Um, in a religiously diverse country such as the United States, our best bet is usually keeping 
uh, on the side of keeping the government neutral in regard to religion. Religious folks, including we Unitarian Universalists, that separation of government and religion, we're still free to lobby the government based on our conscience. We're still free to be the conscience of the state, as Dr. King said, uh, advocating based on our religious values. But the government should remain neutral, neither aiding nor opposing religion. In contrast, the current trend on the Supreme Court is toward the public accommodation of religion. And if you look closely, the decisions have almost always been about accommodating theologically conservative Christians, not making space for religious pluralism more broadly. And surprise, the Supreme Court justices in favor of accommodating conservative Christians just happen to be conservative Christians themselves. At this point, it's important to remember what we spent time learning about at the beginning of this sermon about the world more than four centuries ago. That's what we're trying to avoid sinking back into. In the, 19, in the 1500s, brutal religious oppression was often the consequence for anyone who dissented from the religion currently in favor by the governing elites. Servetus was burned at the stake for his religious beliefs. David died in prison for his religious beliefs. There's so many more examples I could give. The Edict of Torda was this brief glimmer of religious tolerance at that time. And it's so amazing that it's now in our constitution in this American experiment. So let's not ruin this amazing thing. Moving ahead to the 1600s and 1700s, the norm continued of violence in the name of religion. So when the founders of our country came together to begin the American experiment, one of the major factors they had in mind was that in the century and a half leading up to the American Declaration of Independence, England had been consumed by violent destabilizing and oppressive battles over the relationship between religion and government. There's lots of examples we could explore there, but that's the, the upshot. Our founders wanted to learn from this mistake in founding this new government. At that time, Christianity was explicitly a part of the laws of England. And that's precisely what many of our founders, especially influential voices such as Jefferson and Madison, did not want to replicate here in the U.S. They didn't want to found the U.S. as a Christian nation, which is why we get this First Amendment, including an establishment clause. We're not going to establish an official religion, right? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion and a free exercise clause or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So if government just stays, stays neutral, then religion can flourish or not of its own accord. In general, the interpretation of these two clauses is more of what is sometimes called a polarity to be managed than a simple problem to be solved. But in recent years, the Supreme Court has been leading far too far on one side in regard to the public accommodation of conservative Christianity in the name of public accommodation of religion generally. Although there are many cases I would love to bring up, again, I'm just going to quickly go through three cases that the Supreme Court decided just this past summer. So only about six months ago. In each case, I'm going to invite you to pay attention to the dissents, which are desperately trying to get us to notice that we are headed in the wrong direction. In general, I would just say, listen to Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She knows what's up. <laughs> like We could all just spend a lot more time listening to Sotomayor. We'd be in a lot better shape. Um, so let me share my screen with you to try to help with tracking the details of these cases. 
So there's that book, The Religion Clauses by Chemerinsky. So the first case is Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. This ruled that state-based scholarship programs must provide um, public funds, not only to public schools, but also to students who attend private religious schools. It's one thing to say, if you want a private religious school, fund it. It's really another thing to use taxpayer dollars for it. Here's an excerpt from Justice Sotomayor's strongly worded dissent um, Justices uh, Ginsburg, Kagan, and Breyer also dissented. She said, today's ruling is perverse. While the free exercise clause clearly prohibits the use of state action to deny the free exercise to anyone, she's saying, we're not trying to deny anybody's free exercise of religion. It is never meant that the majority could use the machinery of the state to practice its beliefs. Today's court, she continues, by contrast, rejects the religion clauses as balanced values, and it does so only by setting aside well-established judicial constraints. Along those lines, if our nation's founder and fourth president, James Madison, were alive today, he would likely tell us this decision goes wrong by using tax dollars to support religions that not all taxpayers believe in. The second religion case of last summer is Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Baru, which takes a really good thing, the ministerial exemption in employment discrimination. That's something good. It resonates with the Edict of Torta that congregations like UUCF or any others should be able to hire whomever they please without worrying about any other laws as their religious leader. And it unduly expands it to include many other people in private religious organizations that are not the equivalent of ordained clergy. Again, I will quote Justice Sotomayor's dissent that was joined by the now late Justice Ginsburg. Uh, I'm gonna quote a little bit of a long part of her conclusion. I wanna really give you a taste of how strongly she feels that the current direction is an error. Sotomayor writes, this court's conclusion portends grave consequences. Thousands of Catholic teachers may lose employment law protections because of today's outcome. Other sources tally over 100,000 secular teachers whose rights are at risk. And this says nothing of the rights of countless coaches, camp counselors, nurses, social, social service workers, in-house lawyers, media relation personnel, and many others who work in religious institutions. All these employees could now be subject to discrimination for reasons completely irrelevant to the employer's religious tenets. And expanding the ministerial exemption far beyond its historic narrowness, the court overrides Congress's carefully tailored exceptions for religious employers. Little if nothing appears left of the statutory exemptions after today's con um, constitutional broadside. So long as the employer determines that employees' so-called duties are, quote, vital to carrying out the mission of the church, today's laissez-faire analysis appears to allow that employer to make employment decisions so that now there's now you can discriminate despite someone's skin color, age, disability, sex, all those things that we normally list as reasons you can't discriminate. Now you can. In the name of religion, this sweeping result, she said, is profoundly unfair 
She concludes the court is not only wrong on the facts, but its error also risks upending anti-discrimination for protections for many employees of religious entities. Recently, this court has lamented a, quote, discrimination against religion, yet here it swings the pendulum in the extreme opposite direction, permitting religious entities to discriminate widely and with impunity for reasons wholly divorced um, from religious beliefs. She goes on in her hope that this changes. The third case is Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania, which ruled that religious orders, so think monks and nuns, will not be required to provide health insurance for contraception coverage if it goes against their religious beliefs. This continues an erroneous path. Some of you may remember the earlier Hobby Lobby decision. To quote Justice Ginsburg's dissent this time, today for the first time, the court casts aside countervailing rights and interests in its zeal to secure religious rights to the nth degree. As she says elsewhere in her dissent, the higher priority here should be women, women's equal access to preventative services, thereby advancing public health and welfare and the well-being of anyone who is able to reproduce. This troubling trajectory really matters. For instance, a little more than a month ago in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo, the Supreme Court ruled uh, they gr it granted exceptions to some um, uh, religious organizations for COVID-related, uh, looks like I don't have that slide, I'll continue. So uh, Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo um, said that you can have a religious exemption from um, COVID restrictions. Uh, Breyer and Kagan also dissented. They said, the Constitution does not forbid states from responding to public health crises through regulations that treat religious institutions equally or more favorably than compatible secular institutions, particularly when those regulations, like with the coronavirus, save lives. Justices of the court play a deadly game in second guessing about the environments in which a contagious virus, now infecting millions of Americans each week, spread most easily. Looking to the future, this trend of the Supreme Court granting special privileges to conservative Christians may well be far from over. Keep an eye this summer on the case Fulton versus City of Pennsylvania. The Supreme Court is due to rule on whether it is constitutional for a religious-backed foster care agency to deny services to a same-sex couple based on their religious beliefs. Underneath this debate, um, of whether some conservative Christians should be constitutionally allowed to discriminate in public, it's important to see these cases. Not, these are not isolated ethical dilemmas, or at least they're not most skillfully interrogated that way. They are part of a historical sweep about who do we want to be as a country. For instance, one of my favorite Supreme Court cases of all time is titled Newman versus Piggy Park Enterprises. Piggy Park Enterprises was a drive-in barbecue chain owned by the head of, quote, the National Association for the Preservation of White People. In 1964, so this is in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, the defendant argued that his freedom of religion should give him the right to refuse service to Black customers. Fortunately, the court did not support his racism. Similarly, in the 70s and the 80s, schools claimed that based on their religious beliefs, that men should be the head of the household, they shouldn't have to pay women equally. So they could discriminate in public based on um, gender or race. 
the same could is is really it's the same dynamic today playing out with those who want to discriminate against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens of this country. You know, which trajectory do we want to be in? Expanding circles of inclusion for women for African Americans and now for LGBT and continue to expand that? Or do we want to be on the side of a lot of protecting people's bigotry? Tragically, the Supreme Court is increasingly going the other direction and supporting religious people who want to discriminate in public in the name of religion. But it is a dangerous abuse of the Constitution to try to use it to enforce your religious bigotry on others in the public square in the name of religious liberty. Do you know the saying that when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression? That's the situation that many conservative Christians are in today. And I can say that as someone who grew up with a tremendous amount of Christian privilege growing up Southern Baptist in South Carolina. Conservative Christians have become so accustomed to white Christian privilege that the loss of privilege feels like reverse discrimination. But all we're asking for is for everyone to respect equality under the law in a multicultural society. But when you don't get that difference, you get the politics of grievance that can motivate the horrors that played out on Wednesday that could easily have gone so much worse than they already did. So as I begin to move to my conclusion, and I know this is going long, but it turns out I had a few things to say in the wake of extraordinarily important events of this country. And I want us to understand these things, not just in the heat of the moment, but in their larger context. So as I begin to move to my conclusion, let me bring us back just one more time to where we began, because we've reached another point where the historical perspective really matters. Religious conservatives, including many justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, seem to have forgotten what real religious persecution looks like. It is not an unreasonable violation of your religious liberty to make you sell a cake to a same-sex couple, to serve racial minorities at your restaurant, to pay women the same as men. That is nothing more than basic public accommodation in a multicultural civil society. No one is talking about instituting true violations of religious liberty unless it's white Christian supremacists. That's actually what they're talking about and ironically projecting it on to others. We're not talking about truly extreme cases that often resulted in death for religious difference, Servetus, David, and others, nor even slightly less extreme but still terrible cases such as the government assigning you a religious leader, controlling the content of your religious services, prohibiting your religious holidays, all of which do happen in more authoritarian societies today. We talked about all, if you want to know what details, look at the sermon we did um, a year ago on religion in China. We could talk all about that and many other places. Look at North Korea. In many ways, our situation boils down to basic liberalism. Do you know that saying, you are free to swing your fist, but your right to swing your fist, it ends when it hits my face. That's the basic tenet motivating the worldview I'm hoping we get to. The religious equivalent is that you can in many ways constitutionally should be allowed to do almost anything you want religiously in private, but there's some accommodations you need to make in public, especially when taxpayer dollars are involved, since we live not in a conservative Christian theocracy, but in a religiously diverse democracy. As the saying goes, a republic, if you can keep it. So where do we go from here? 
On the one hand, I will readily concede that it really matters that Neil Gorsuch is on the Supreme Court instead of Merrick Garland, that Brett Kavanaugh's nomination was not blocked, that Amy Coney Barrett has replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that I know she is rolling over in her grave about. On the other hand, I took the time to highlight the dissents to the recent Supreme Court decision because the long view of Supreme Court jurisprudence shows us that dissents can plant seeds that sometimes grow into majority opinions overturning erroneous precedents. If this past week has taught us anything, is that there are no guarantees that the powers that be will do the right thing. Likewise, there are no guarantees that just dissents will one day become the law of the land. But here's what we can do. We can continue individually and together to be committed to doing as much as we can for as long as we can within our various and diverse spheres of influence to create a world that is fair for all, not merely a privileged and entitled few. For now, I'll conclude with a quote that has been on my heart and mind this week from the inimitable James Baldwin. I invite you to listen to it with an ear to the precarious freedoms that we hold dear and do our best to protect and our desire to build the world we dream about for ourselves and for generations to come. Baldwin wrote, nothing is fixed forever and forever and forever. It is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to grind down rock. Generations do not cease to be born, and we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses they have. The seas rise. The light fails. Lovers cling to each other, and the children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold each other, all of us, the moment we cease to hold each other, the moment we break faith with one another of this multicultural civil society we're trying to build, the moment we break faith with one another, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. May our choices in the days to come lead us to be the ones about whom it will be said they kept the faith. They kept the candles of hope, of liberty and justice, burning when the light threatened to go out. In that spirit to remind us of this world we're hoping to build together. Let's sing together. Let this be a house of peace.